This pandemic in general has highlighted how there are inequalities in our society. Just imagine you're new to the country, you don't have access to technology, and you don't speak English or French. Particularly seniors that were really scared, they were, were worried and they were telling us we have no food. Really, um, there's as many different needs as there are individuals. So how do you get the information that you need to take care of yourself? I didn't really know of any food delivery early on. Folks looking for things that especially had been hoarded, things like hand sanitizer and even over-the-counter medications. There was no plan for them. What were they going to do? There was nothing. It's been half a year since COVID hit. And to say the least, it's been tough. Millions of people around the world have contracted the virus. We're stuck at home and isolated. We miss our friends and loved ones. And many people have taken a serious financial blow. But the pandemic isn't affecting everyone equally. Newcomers, Black, Indigenous, people of color, women, youth, people with disabilities, people in precarious jobs all hit harder. But the pandemic has also inspired people to step up. They've donated money and time and food. People have been banging pots at 7 p.m. A Nanaimo woman started the Hearts and Windows campaign that spread around the world. And today on Good Money, we're gonna hear from a few of the amazing helpers who have made a difference. First off, I'm going to introduce you to an amazing young person called Avery Shannon. When COVID hit, everyone was in shock and everything came to a sudden halt. For some people, it caused immediate and very serious problems. Seniors, people with compromised immune systems or limited mobility, people whose income was suddenly cut off, many couldn't get food or vital medications. Delivery services were overloaded and a lot of supports they relied on vanished, literally overnight. Then, a Facebook group appeared. It was called COVID-19 Coming Together. Almost overnight, it grew from a few hundred followers to tens of thousands. Some people posted about the things they needed, others posted about what they had to offer, and a whole new community was created. One of the organizers behind that community is Avery Shannon. Avery is an activist from Vancouver with deep roots in the disability community. We spoke with Avery about what happened, what they saw, and the difference they made. In the beginning, um, it it really came together from um, five of us having conversations with each other about how we could fill this need that we saw in our communities, how we could support our networks through mutual aid. We were having these separate conversations and decided to actually have them together. So we hopped on a Zoom call and began chatting about what we were going to do, what we were going to be called, and how we were going to do it in a big way was a really big thing for us. We decided that we wanted to share resources and support each other and show solidarity for healthcare and frontline workers as well as the vulnerable, and we wanted to build community and amplify social movements, fighting for critical access to healthcare and housing and workers' rights. We knew that it would probably have a big launch, but it still took us by surprise when we hit so many members so quickly. So we saw a huge variety of needs and offers because 
Really, um, there's as many different needs as there are individuals. But we did see some common patterns emerge, such as, you know, folks looking for things that especially had been hoarded, things like hand sanitizer and even over-the-counter medications. Um, one story from the very first day that we launched was someone out in Abbotsford who had a very sick baby who desperately needed some baby Tylenol. But everywhere that they had looked had been wiped clean of it. So through the group, they were able to connect with someone who was able to find some and bring it to them and help out this new parent. Well, this pandemic in general has highlighted how there are inequalities in our society that have existed since before COVID-19. All these different people from groups that have been made marginalized are people who are being hit by this pandemic in a more extreme way. And this group is, as much as possible, making space for those voices to be uplifted and for those needs to be met. And honestly, it's been pretty successful at that. We've seen a number of people have access to resources and community and networks that they wouldn't have otherwise. So that's been truly amazing to see. One of the big things that our group has done is create the Survival Fund for the People, where we launched a GoFundMe and were able to crowdfund $65,000 and have begun distributing that money in sums of $25 to $100 to individuals who apply, who are in need. And we're really trying to reach people who aren't eligible for the government benefits. So really the people who have fallen through the cracks. And there's been so much gratitude and positive feedback from that. It's been both heartwarming and heartbreaking to see. It's been really heartwarming to know that we can make what folks are saying is a huge difference for them. And it's also heartbreaking that such a small amount is so much. And we're just one small group, whereas there are so many other larger groups, such as the government, um, who could be making so much of an impact. But I'm glad that we're at least able to. So we, as members of society, decided that we have a choice on how to navigate our way forward. We could choose fear and division and toilet paper hoarding, or we could build a different narrative, one where practicing physical separation doesn't mean being isolated from each other, because there's so much that is difficult about this time, and it really offers us a chance as a society to slow down, to come together and reconnect with each other and with what's important and with visions for how we want our day-to-day -day lives and how we want our future to look. That was Avery Shannon. Avery was one of the creators of a Facebook page called COVID-19 Coming Together Vancouver. For more information or to get help or give help, you could check out comingtogethervancouver.org. During COVID-19, people across our community stepped up to help 
and reached out for help when they needed it. But what if you're new to Canada and haven't found your community yet? What if you don't speak the language? Where can you go and who can help? To talk about that, I'm joined by Chris Friesen from the Immigrant Services Society of BC. Hi, Chris. Hi, good afternoon. So when COVID hit, borders are closed, flights are grounded. What were some of the immediate impacts on people who were in the process of coming to Canada? Yeah, I mean, at that point, there were uh, estimated uh, around 7,500 resettled refugees that had their permanent resident status, but couldn't get flights to Canada. So there was a group of folks that were suspended abroad, and then there were folks that were already in the country that were um, being impacted in their ability to look for permanent housing. So uh, it really hit uh, both groups equally in a unique situation. Sure. I imagine a lot of the offices that might be helping them normally were closed. Everything closed down uh, around the 18th of March throughout Canada including 14 offices that ISS of BC runs throughout BC. Right. Wow. Okay. And so what are some of the challenges then that are facing people that have arrived? I think the biggest challenge um, is that there is a significant cohort of folks, newcomers, that don't have access to technology and are digital illiterate. Um, It's these folks that are having the greatest challenge, whether that's refugees, seniors, youth, etc. I can imagine because I think back even in the early days of COVID, how obsessively I was checking various devices and that sort of thing to try to get the information that you need right now. And that must be a real challenge. Absolutely. And then on top of that, just imagine you're new to the country. You don't have access to technology, you're digital illiterate, and you don't speak English or French. So how do you get the information that you need to take care of yourself, right? Because those early days, those early weeks, the information that was being communicated to the public was primarily only in English. You know, it was only after, uh, I think, six or seven weeks that we began to see information in a variety of other languages, And then what about some of things like getting food or having to deal with transportation? What did you see affecting these communities? Well, those that were in uh, quarantine, of course, weren't leaving. So food was being provided to them. Others that were out in the community were by and large able to secure their basic needs. But there was a real push to help them access PPE in order to, uh, you know, maintain their own safety and follow existing health protocols. So things like getting people masks and, you know, so they can go shopping themselves. Is that the idea? Exactly. Um, But also realizing, too, as the uh, guidelines and lockdowns were progressing, of course, that meant uh, less uh, transit. And so this was all compounding some of the challenges faced. I wonder, were you seeing, you know, even in non-COVID times, there's massive mental health challenges because of financial stress and migration trauma for people coming. What did you see during this time and how was your organization dealing with that? Yeah, probably starting in uh, early April, we did a uh, telephone outreach needs assessment a survey with over 450 government-assisted refugee families that had arrived since January 1st, 2019. And the financial or income security, in addition to mental health, were two top issues. 
as the lockdown was progressing and people were losing their job, you know, they were counting on their jobs to cover some of their rent. And so it was leading to precarious situations. Later on, the province created these additional emergency COVID benefits. But again, many of these benefits, both federal and provincial, were linked to your tax records. But if you arrived in 2019, you didn't necessarily had filed your income tax for that year. So this has been a significant push in um, late April and May was helping individuals virtually uh, file their income tax. On the mental well-being piece, yes, we've seen a lot of uh, pre-migration trauma, which has played out in various ways now once they're, you know, so-called safe in Canada. But uh, we're doing uh, a lot more spot checks, telephone check-ins to try and support to the best of our ability these individuals. Okay. And then are you seeing in terms of financial effects, what does it mean for new immigrants and refugees trying to find work right now? Well, that's a huge challenge, you know. So on top of finding work, right, if you don't have access to technology, ability to do your resume, transit. So these all compounded and uh, created really unique challenges for them. That remains the most pressing need going forward. In fact, we're just finalizing a digital literacy curriculum that will help teach newcomers just by and through their phone to, you know, obtain an email, download and access Zoom. So very, very basic things. And I guess with that whole need for virtual support, there's all the more need for tech to be a a big part of what they're learning how to do. And this is where we see the great divide, the inequality between those that are digital literate, that have access to technologies, and those that don't. This becomes very problematic, especially for what we call communities of lesser diffusion. So those communities that have small numbers of people, non-English speakers, that don't make the radar screen of some of the larger ethnocultural communities that where interpretation and translation is being provided. Okay, so there's just they're less likely to have the translated COVID information out there, for example. Exactly. And that's been one of the things that we've been um, advising both the federal government and the BC government is around uh, keeping their eye on uh, a number of languages and communities that are at particular risk and should be considered for priority translation. For example, Arabic, Karin, Montagnard, Somali are some of the ones. So what can listeners do? Wow. So the easiest way, of course, is to reach out to an immigrant serving agency such as ours, ISSABC. We're always looking for, at this time, cash donations. We've got specific programs that we're trying to appeal to the public to help the most marginalized families. We're trying to get uh, up and running a lending library of of computers, iPads uh, for isolated, at-risk newcomer families. These are some of the most pressing needs at the moment. So technology and financial donations would be the two most immediate things. Okay. Yeah, those are great suggestions and very sort of can be easily acted on, I think, by our listeners. 
Thanks so much, Chris. Chris Friesen is the Director of Settlement Services with the Immigrant Services Society of BC. If you know someone who could use their help, you can find them at issbc.org or by phone at 604-684-2561. You're listening to Good Money, brought to you by Van City. I'm your host, Annika Quinn. Today, we're talking about how the community stepped up to help during COVID-19. And in our next episode, we're going to talk about Canada's financial future and specifically about the country's growing debt. We have lots more financial tips in the weeks ahead, so don't forget to hit subscribe. People like Chris Friesen and Avery Shannon from COVID-19 Coming Together have this ability to identify needs in our community and then step up and do what needs to get done. Another person who saw a serious need in those early days and did something about it is Ian Mercuse. Ian is a community food developer with the Grandview Woodland Food Connection. He works in partnership with the Britannia Community Center. His main focus is food security and food networks. And he leads a program that teaches people how to grow food. He's also worked with the city on building a stronger local community food system. But when the pandemic hit, his job changed in a big way. He and his team suddenly found themselves delivering food hampers to hundreds of people who needed help. Ian Marcuse joins me now. Hi, Ian. Hello, Annika. So, Ian, when COVID first hit, what happened? What need did you see out there? Oh, my gosh. Well, (laughs) I mean, it was very eerie, wasn't it? Those first few days when the city announced um, the shutdown or whatever you call it. The media concern were all of the folks that were at home, stuck at home, and because we were told not to go out. So how are people going to get their food? And and our, our main concern were the elders and the seniors and those with um, health conditions that, you know, had absolutely no way to get out. And we knew that that grocery delivery was backed up for weeks. Britannia was unique in that, unlike many community centers, Britannia has its own board of management because we work with the school board and the library all on one site. So we were able to activate our essential services literally within a day or two. So we kept some childcare open. We immediately set up an emergency food delivery program. So we moved all our fridges and freezers into one space. Uh, We redeployed a number of the staff that were potentially laid off. We were able to redeploy them to call all of our people that are connected to the community center and check in with them, make sure they're okay and what are their needs. And we were able to activate our volunteer programmer who was able to get us a whole lot of volunteers. And pretty immediately, within a couple of days, we started doing food delivery and everything in the city was shut down. I mean, it was very eerie. And there weren't many agencies that we were aware of that were able to respond as quickly. They just were struggling with, well, how do we deal with social distancing? How do we deal with all the safety protocols? So the large instant, like the city, the, uh, the some of the larger organizations basically shut down. I didn't really know of any food delivery early on. When you think back on that time, are there stories of people that you were speaking with that really stand out for you? Yeah, well, we were getting a few calls from um, particularly seniors that were really scared. They were, were worried and they were telling us we have no food and they, had, they weren't able to go out. They were afraid to go out. Um, the food banks were closed, uh, most of them, and, and the grocery stores were inaccessible. You know, we're, it was great that we were able to get food to them like immediately. And, uh, and it was a huge relief to them. I know they've been extremely appreciative. And, and uh, I mean, some of the seniors were just like, oh, my God, you're an angel. So glad we're able to help. I feel bad that people have been in this situation in, in this city, in this country, that people are 
you know, we weren't really prepared. I mean, fortunately at Britannia, we had a lot of capacity that's come about through decades of community development. So we were able to mobilize resources quite quickly. But for all those people that were, were told to remain in quarantine or to remain indoors, there was no plan for them. What were they going to do? There was, there was nothing. Yeah. So, and tell me what this involves then. You've got your volunteers, you've got access to food through organizations, or how are you sort of distributing this now? Yeah. So this is all new to us, although we had established, because we've been working in doing community development now for decades. And so, you know, we had our partnerships, we have business contacts, community member contacts, all those relationships were in place with other agencies. So, you know, for us, Doing emergency food delivery is not part of our mandate. We're more focused on skill building, education, policy, advocacy, and that type of stuff. So, you know, it was a quick learning, but we had some um, systems in place. Like we, we purchased food through various wholesalers already. So we were able to quickly get that food bought. And so we'd be ordering food. We don't have a large walk-in cooler or anything. So we're ordering basically daily calling up volunteers to help sort, lining up drivers, calling our, our people, seeing who needs food, and sending the drivers out there. So we, we redeployed a number of our staff. Many of the staff were laid off, but we were able to re- redeploy some of those people. And they were calling all, our, all the folks that are connected through Britannia, like 1,000 or 2,000 people, I can't remember, but they were on the phones for two weeks straight calling everyone, checking in, seeing what their needs were. Did they need masks? Did they need hand sanitizer? Did they need food? Did they need cell phones if they weren't connected? Um, So we were able to mobilize a pretty good network pretty fast. And so they would all relay uh, messages to us of people that needed food. And plus we reached out to various agencies and said, listen, we're open. Just send us referrals to, to people. Specifically focusing, like our priority was elders and seniors first and foremost, and others with health issues. So it all happened pretty quick. Amazing. And do you have a sense of how many hampers you're delivering on any given day? So yeah, we're, I mean, we're seven days a week, um, 25 to 35 food hampers to about 500 families. So we're delivering all around East Vancouver. So yeah, we're, we're pretty busy. And it's been like that since mid-March, long hours, seven days a week. It's, it's pretty nutty, but I guess it's important. I guess it's needed. I mean, people are extremely appreciative. So, I mean, I feel good about that. And I feel good that we're able to give them really healthy food, a lot of fruits and vegetables. But it's not, I've been saying too, it's not something that we really enjoy doing. Like, yeah, it's nice to help people, of course. We we feel good about that. But this system, it's just wrong that people have to be asking for food. You know, people mm-hmm. need to have the income to purchase food of their own choosing, Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a temporary program, and ultimately, we need to work on advocating for better supports for people, financial, economic supports. So we've been hearing pretty wonderful stories about how businesses have mobilized during this time to try to help people out, whether it's Shambar Restaurants Food Coalition or some of the staff meal programs for unemployed workers at restaurants like Say Mercy. What have you seen around your organization? Have you had businesses step up to support you as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, the businesses have been fantastic. I mean, they're a key part of, of, of our support system. So we've had many, you know, donations from many of the businesses. So for example, the Nut Hut, um, who supply a lot of grains and legumes and seeds and nuts and really healthy food, stepped up with like an $800 donation of, of bulk food. So 
Um, that was fantastic. East End Food Co-op has been uh, purchasing food for us at cost. Uh, you know, Pasture to Plate was was providing us these wonderful, you know, cooked, grass-fed burgers. Italian Cultural Center was sending us, or is still sending us food basically three times a week that they've been preparing. Um, Save on Meats in the downtown east side has been sending us uh, food weekly. So I could name dozens of businesses that have made donations to us and, and still are making donations. So big shout out to businesses. And I really encourage people in the community to really support your local businesses. You know, they're not having an easy time with COVID either, but they're there for us. You know, it's a, it's a, fantastic community that we're in. I, I'm inspired and, and heartwarmed by the amount of support we've been getting. That's wonderful. Um, and you've been working with farmers too. Oh yeah, and the farmers too. So one cool relationship that we've established is with the city of Vancouver, the Parks Board. Um, so the, the uh, horticulturists down at Sunset Nursery, that's where the city grows all of their plants, have started growing food during this COVID time. So we've been getting weekly uh, crates of fresh-grown organic um, veggies from the Sunset Nursery, which has been fantastic. We partnered with Fractal Farm, so they're a local farm as well, and they've been donating the equivalent of $4,000 worth of farm produce to our program. So again, like high-quality organic food. Um, so those are two examples. Soul Food, which you may know of, the urban agriculture business. And Soul Food does be. really wonderful work about employing people uh, in the downtown east side as well. They have a really They're awesome. Circle. They are so awesome for sure. Wonderful. So do you have a sense, you sort of said since mid-March, do you have an idea of just how much food you've delivered overall? Oh my God. Um, I know that we're up to getting close to 3,000 food hampers. Amazing. So, and it's a lot of food in each hamper. These aren't small little hampers. They're like 40 pound boxes. I mean, we, we ask our drivers, one of the first questions I ask them is, how's your back? You know, because some of these boxes are pretty heavy, but yeah. So, you know, we're packing the food in. You know, you mentioned that this is not an ideal world, that you want people to have the capacity to be able to buy their own food as well. What would you like to see happen come out of this? Yeah, you know, I think there are a lot of interesting conversations to be had when we um, get through this. You know, for example, where are resources best put or best spent to be able to respond as, you know, quickly and effectively to these issues? We need to build a voice, a stronger voice. I mean, we have for many years been pushing for uh, uh, poverty reduction strategies, but we're going to have to work even harder because, you know, we're a country with a lot of wealth. and, And again, we need to be advocating for the, the social support so that people aren't in the situation of having to ask for donated food and free food. And I know many people that have approached us have been really shy about asking for the food. And, and a number of people have said they've never had to ask for free food before. And you can hear it in people's voices. And it's even hard for us to ask people, would you like a food box today? You know, because we know that there's stigma around poverty and asking for free things. And so, you know, we approach it with a lot of gentleness. For example, we're not going to say, do you need a food box today? We'll say, would you like to have some food today? You know, we're happy to deliver this food to you. So we need to be advocating for systems change, for proper social supports, proper income supports. So again, people can purchase their own food. Right. Make the choices themselves. Exactly. And Yeah. And so how can listeners help? 
You know, get engaged in your community. I mean, I think the way in which we've responded has largely been about the relationships that we've established. So, you know, connect with your community centers, volunteer, get to know people, get, yeah, just get involved because this is the resilience. This is the, the social fabric is all those social connections, those relationships that come about through people working together, through getting to know each other, getting to know, you know, work with seniors, like get to know some local seniors and, and, um, you know, build some relationships with people who, you know, may have mobility issues and can't get out as easily. Build some support systems for your in your community, however you feel you can do that. Help advocate for systems change or poverty reduction strategies, income supports, livable annual wages, better, you know, more social housing and all of these things that can go a long ways to putting more money in people's pockets. Right. Yeah, I think it's clear that community has never been so important as we've seen right now and uh, truly, thank you for everything that you did in the last while. I'm so inspired by the community. And, you know, the silver lining in, in COVID is that people are aware of the importance of community. And we've seen the power of community mobilize. And, you know, East Van, it's an amazing community. You know, uh, we've got 120 volunteers that have stepped up. I mean, and, and no complaints. Everyone's just so willing to help out. And, and people care. You know, people have made lots of donations. People are putting a lot of time in to, to delivering the food and so on. And, and, and it's just so inspiring. And that's the power of community. And despite how hard COVID is, and it is hard for a lot of people, but, um, you know, we've shown that we can get through this with, with yeah. compassion and care. Thanks so much, Ian. Ian is a community food developer with the Grandview Woodland Food Connection. You can find them at gwfoodconnection.com. That's it for Good Money Today. I'm your host, Annika Quinn. I hope you found this episode and the people in it as inspiring and interesting as I did. Don't miss our next episode when we're going to be talking with a top expert about debt and what a real financial recovery might look like. So make sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you next time.